Good evening. It's Saturday night, so I thought we would do something exciting. <laughs> so continuing with the 43rd, 47th Anucheta of Bhagavat Sandarbha, uh, specifically dealing with the nature of the name, transcendental name and names of the Supreme Bhagavan, Sri Krishna. Um, and we basically left off after a general discussion with one of the verses from the Sixasticum, which we just chanted. Nam Namakadi Bahudani Jasarva Shakti Stritarpita Niyamita Spanarne Nakala Itadrasitava Kripa Bhagavan Mamapi Durdaivam Idrisam Ihajanin Nuraga. So the distinct nature of the Lord's name is that it is a supreme benediction to suffering humanity. It contains there's no difference between the Lord and his name and all the potencies that we can find in any of the other attributes that are being discussed here, the Lord's form, the Lord's Leela, and the Lord's name, his name, form, actions, and attributes. So name, form, actions, and attributes. So they all have the same transcendental uh, effectiveness. Uh, and this evening, this particular Anucheta is going to draw from a variety of different Shastrik Pramans or evidences in order to uh, drive home the point, pound the post so that we have no question as to the uh, efficacy of the Holy Name. So, Srila Jiva Goswami continues in his Anucheta with a quote from the Brahma Purana. The Lord is said to be nameless, a nama, because the transcendental nature of his name is unknown. He is said to be formless, a rupa, because his form is not made of material elements goes on with another quote from the Vishnu Purana. O Lord, Brahma, the eternal, immutable, and unborn, I'm sorry, Brahman. O Lord, Brahman, the eternal, immutable, unborn, absolute, is that in which conceptualizations, kalpana, of the name, class, and so on, do not exist. You are that Brahman, but without such conceptualization. Nothing can be ascertained. And so you are worshipped by names such as Krishna, Achuta, Ananta, and Vishnu. What this statement from the Vishnu Purana is highlighting is, as we know from the core verse, Brahmati, Paramatmati, Bhagavaniti, Sabdite, these are equal. They're just different neat nomenclatures for the same supreme personality or supreme Lord, absolute truth, non-dual, 
absolute. So this particular uh, sloka from the Vishnu Purana is saying that if we look to the absolute as Brahman, then conceptual the conceptualizations, Kalpana, of his name and class, they don't really come into play because looking at the Brahman conception, Brahman doesn't have any names. Once you assign a name to Brahman, then there would have to be some associated Shakti because any name, spiritual name, would have its own inherent potencies. Again, we're talking about the proper Brahmavad conception, not the Mayavad conception, which the Brahmavadis feel that the topmost conception of the Absolute is one where there is no conceptualization of a name or a form. Although the Absolute can manifest a name and a form, the topmost conception of the Absolute is one where those factors are not seen as the primary consideration. So Brahman can take a name, can take a form, but when you really when you really get to the core of the absolute truth, the impersonal conception is 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 the best way to understand the Supreme. Of course the difference is the Mayavadis think that any conceptualization is Maya. That's the difference. So quite simply stated that uh, that a Mayavadi doesn't think that anything spiritual can have any correlation to our empiric existence. There's no names in spiritual life, there's no forms, there's no actions, there's nothing. Because if there's anything, it's Maya. So that's that's this that's what Sankaracharya put forth to bewilder that class of spiritualists. So Krishna said, Come up with your own system. Make up your own religion. Okay, I can go with that. And you know, Shiva said, Sure. I can I can I can even use your scriptures, right? Oh yeah, yeah, do whatever you it's okay. I want this. Then going forward if we look at it in a in a, in a chronology, an unfoldment of these various uh, understandings of spirituality, it has some real significance. Sankaracharya's place is significant from Buddha's descent. Krishna comes as Buddha to do away with the misapplication of his laws. Of you know, you're misapplying my laws and. You're doing it in such a way that you're creating violence. And that's not what sacrifice is about. Sacrifice is meant to to purify everyone involved. Not that your purity 
is attained or your attainments are acquired at the cost of someone else. So if you're simply doing sacrifices and the sacrificed is not benefited as much as yourself, then that's, that's not really the intent of sacrifice. The, uh, the sacrificed needs to also be benefited. So we hear that when these Brahmins, these Brahmins that have these mystical powers through the proper application of mantras and mudras and procedures and positions, this, this Brahmin and that Brahmin, and there's one that just looks at the scriptures and makes sure that every... So there's a, it's a very scientific thing. And at the other end of it, not only do you get the son that you wanted, but the, sac- the, the object of the sacrifice gets a new body, rejuvenated body. So everybody, it's, everybody's a winner. It's a win-win situation. So when the sacrifices are performed and it's not a win-win situation, then that's not the proper application of the knowledge of the Veda that the Supreme put forth for the benefit of mankind. So Buddha said, we'll do away with it. We'll throw out the baby and the bath water and the whole thing and let's forget about this Veda. There's nothing good in the Veda for humanity. Well, there is a lot good in the Veda for humanity, but we've got to clear the slate because you have got the formulas so messed up and the conceptions that you, are, you, you have applied to Vedic knowledge are so much out of whack that I've got to erase the board. I, I have no place to start here. That's how, that's how far things had gone in Vedic society. So Buddha, throw it out. Throw out the baby, the bath water, the, you know, the tub, the whole thing. Let's just let's start anew. There's nothing for you in the Veda. You know, you can worship me and and detach yourself from materiality. Don't be wrapped up in the Vedas as a as the as the proper methodology to acquire satisfaction in the world much better that you just follow me, follow my path. You can attain nirvana, clear your mind of all this. In fact, clear your mind of everything. Clear your mind so much that there's nothing left. No conceptions. Because if you have any conception, it has to be material. So Sankaracharya comes, Buddha's done his thing, he's wiped the slate clean, and Sankaracharya says, he comes and he says, well, all right, we can clear the, clear the consciousness and attain the state of nirvana, but there's some value in the Veda in that they're speaking of nirvana and seeing it as the self, the being, the core of the absolute truth has is spiritual. So it's not that it's nothing. 
We can't say that we're nothing. We're something. So we're spiritual. Now any conception you may have regarding spirit relating to what you've experienced what we experience in the empiric world around us, that's wrong. So those parts of the Vedas that you know put forth the everything that's related to conceptions of spirituality where you're you're giving it any attribute name, form, quality, pastimes from your world of humanity that can't be a spiritual conception. And then gradually Ramanuj comes and he introduces a, a more more a deeper concept and throws out the bad parts of Sankaracharya's mispresentation of the Vedas. And then Madhvacharya and we come around to the the personal conception of the absolute is introduced. So people are gradually they're put back on the Vedic path, one major acharya after another. So we can understand, wow, how much the Vedas must have been misrepresented before the advent of, of Buddha that this gradual over centuries, over acharyas, one after another, coming to reestablish Vedic knowledge until Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu advents and we have the full, absolute, topmost conception of spirituality introduced into human society. So it's... It's it's a it's a very very deep and profound what can we say Leela of the Lord step by step reestablishing religion didn't just reestablish it overnight but it was re reintroduced gradually from our perspective. From his perspective, well, it was a moment. <laughs> so, what this verse from the Vishnu Purana is saying that when we look at spirituality, you cannot, these conceptualizations of, of form and name and class, uh, they don't really apply. But we do see in Shastra, name, form, and a class attributed to the Absolute Truth, to the Supreme. So, when we hear that the Absolute has no name, form, and class, that aspect of the Absolute that's being discussed in those sections is the Brahman conception. And what it's, the Shastra is really saying is material name, material class, material kalpana, conceptualizations don't apply to the Supreme. 
So when you when you hear that Shastra says that they don't apply, then we know, well, the absolute can have name, form, attributes, but not name, form, and attributes from the material conceptualization. You can't make up your own name for the absolute or your own form. I think he looks like this. He has, you know, who knows what people could come up with as far as, you know, the mind thinking of thinking, you know, making up their own God, basically. And there's certain people out there, I'm sure, that that do it. But it's not based on the Swarup, the actual name, form, and absolute, uh, and form and qualities and Leela of the absolute. The absolute has its own Swarup. That Swarup has been experienced in revelation and provided through discourse of those revelations. Even that discourse in modern times has now been written down because we can't even remember what they say about it. We become so feeble-minded that it's had it has to be written down now. But that doesn't diminish what really happened. People experience these things. The whole Bhagavatam is based on experience. Read the Bhagavatam. It's one experience after another after another. One revelation after another after another. The Bhagavatam itself is fully transcendental. So whenever we hear these leelas of these various avatars and manifestations of the Supreme Lord and the, the interaction of humanity that led to the revelation of those leelas, the Bhagavatam, even for hearing that, you've taken the time to listen to this narration. Guess what you get? You weren't even there. But you've, uh, you have taken your consciousness into this. Now you get something. You get a benediction. Whoever reads this narration of Dhruva Maharaj will become, will get the same result that Dhruva Maharaj himself got. Just by reading the Leela. That's the point that's being made here in this part of the Bhagavat Sandarbha. The name, the form, the qualities, the pastimes, all of these are fully transcendental. And as Sri Chaitanya points out in relationship to the name, they have all the transcendental potency. In, in these holy names, you've invested all your transcendental energies. There's not even a hard and fast rule for chanting these names. The problem is, I can't do it properly. So now we're going to go through these discussions and we're going to see, uh, what am I doing wrong? Why am I not getting this revelation from the whole? Why aren't tears flowing from my eyes, my you know, why am I not experiencing ecstatic uh, appreciation continually just being in association? 
because we hear that all these people, all these all these different people from the Leela of the Bhagavatam, what happened when they had their revelation? Wow. They didn't they they lost it. They lost they lost their they had lost their entire material existence. Gone. Now, if there's no difference between seeing the Lord's form and hearing his name and and hearing about his leela or experiencing his qualities, if there's no difference and we're chanting the holy name, then why aren't we immediately experiencing what they what what the scripture, what the Bhagavatam tells us that they experienced? We have to ask. We'd be foolish not to. So Jiva's going to walk us through that. So it is not that the Lord is devoid of name, class, and so on, but rather his name and class, Jati, are self-existent and hence prior to conceptualization. Kalpana, thought constructs. So conceptualizations, thought constructs. We, In this world, that's how we put things together. Our understanding of anything falls into, we, we conceptualize what exactly is going on, how exactly is that steam engine running, what's causing the turbine to spin. It is for this reason that his name is imperceptible to mind and speech. So conceptualizations do not exist in regards to his names. The classes within which he appears or anything else in relation to him. Rather, it is to be understood that all of these are simply manifestations of the eternal potency of his essential nature. Is indicated in the following verse discussed earlier in Anacheda in this very Anacheda. Sri Narada said, if we look back to when we started, we're still on the same Anacheda, it's been a while. We approach the Supreme Lord who is pure consciousness personified, whose goals are automatically accomplished, accomplished by virtue of his being situated in his own existence, whose desires are always fulfilled, and by whose prowess the flow of the three gunas of Maya is never dispelled from him, is ever dispelled from him. That's from the tenth canto. Jiva goes on to explain that empirical knowledge, anything that we experience in the world, every perceptible object that we that we perceive, it can't occur and be understood in the mind without some classification. Immediately, the mind attributes whatever we see. Not immediately, it's in the second moment. In the first moment, we we perceive that something's there. Immediately after perceiving something's there, what is it? Let me, let me, do I like it? Do I dislike it? Is it hot? You know, 
immediately the mind starts working after this first moment of recognizing that there's something to perceive. In that first moment, it's wonder. There's something. In the mind of a child, it's, you know, the child doesn't have all the classification stuff going on, so it's like, it's exciting, everything. Later in life, it we doesn't contain the same wonder and amazement at everything. We lose some of that as we go on. But everything, if you think about it, everything in the world, the mind immediately puts it in a category, in a class, and then starts to make a determination as to whether it's desirable or undesirable, and on and on we go. And then the mind is so fickle that it's, it vacillates back and forth. And the girl I loved, I now hate. <laughs> the girl I hate, I now love. And the car I wanted is now the piece of junk. I want the new car. And, you know, this is material existence. Krishna's name is different. Krishna, there's no, there's no classification required. These self-existing names constitute the Vedas, transcend all material names and their corresponding objects, and are imperceptible by any means of acquiring knowledge. They're self-manifest. I recognize that's hard. It's really... If you think about it, we think that we've come into knowledge of Krishna through the mercy of the sadhu, the guru, and we've we're at we're where we're at now in our understanding, just as if I went to a university and now I have some understanding of a subject of the world. But in reality that's not the way it's worked. We only come to fully comprehend the efficacy and the necessity of, of entering into spiritual life. We call it discipline. We, we become a disciple. We, we dedicate ourselves to, according to our capacity, turning off those material things that interfere with revelation, that's truly what lets us perceive the reality of, of spirit, of the Supreme, of Krishna. It's not an academic process. In the beginning, Rupa Goswami says in the Bhakti Rasa Vrita Sindhu, a little detachment and a little knowledge can be helpful. Just try to grasp what he's saying here. A little knowledge and a little detachment can be helpful. And we can note, after some years, in the environment of the sadhus that those people that after decades hold on to the detachment 
and put it forth as the be-all and end-all of their spiritual position and progress, it's, it's, it's not the same. It can be, at that point, a detriment. All of a sudden, their whole view of spiritual life is through a lens of detachment. And through that lens, I judge my and everyone around me's spiritual position based on their level of detachment. What happens when they come into contact with somebody like Pundarik Vijaniti? They, their whole, the whole thing just gets, or Ramananda Roy. They observe his, his, his dealings in trying to make a play and preparing the young woman and all of a sudden the deepest thinker regarding the inner life of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu who Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu took instruction from or spoke through but that's another story but the point is being made there looking through the lens of detachment you never see his saintliness, and he's so saintly that Lord Jaitanya is, is learning from him. Or Pundarik, Pundarik Vidyaniti. He's, he's living in the lap of luxury until he hears one verse from the Bhagavatam and he goes mad. He can't keep it together. Do we want to look at these devotees through the eye of of the critical eye of detachment as being the ruler of spiritual position, it's not going to work. There has to come a point where that little detachment in the beginning is seen for what it is. Does that mean that the devotee of Krishna doesn't have any detachment from the world? No, he has the most detachment but you're not going to be able to see it properly. You can go to the village and to the sadhus that are living in the holy dom and they just look like ordinary people and you're like, where's the spiritual life in that? But you don't, if you come close enough, you hear that on their tongues, in their breath, is the continual chanting of the holy name in everything they do everything they do. They've become completely absorbed so much that they're given the privilege of being able to reside there. We go there and how long can we stay? And a little bit of knowledge. The same thing applies. So people would start thinking, well, if I learn all the verses, if I and I, I I can speak and I can chant one verse after another. A little knowledge is needed, yes, but you're never going to know all the verses. 
And you're never not going to know everything about Krishna. But if you can know through good association how to love Krishna, that's all that's required. So the name's not a product of conceptualization. And the practice is not one of, of, of detachment and, and, and knowledge alone. In fact, those two things are not even ungas of bhakti. Now it should be understood that only those names that are celebrated in the scriptures um, that invoke immediate remembrance of the Supreme Lord uh, and and manifest a potency whereby even a nonchalant chanting can grant liberation, those are the names of the Lord that are being referred to here as completely transcendental. Sri Krishna's names may convey an attribute he possesses, such as Ganasham, he who is blackish like a fresh monsoon rain cloud. Or they may convey his pastimes, such as Giridhari, he who lifted Govardhan Hill. Because he is inherently self-endowed with trans-conventional qualities and eternally manifests trans-egoic play, Leela, there is no need for him to be assigned merely conceptualized names that are incapable of reflecting his true nature. He has transcendent names that that in and of themselves contain all the Leela. That's what's being said here. Contain the complete concept. When we say Lord Narayan, immediately what comes to mind? Well, that's the Lord of Vaikuntha, the consort Lakshmi, the four arms in different places according to different moods and different uh, Vaikuntha atmospheres. And from him are coming Vishnus that make material universes. So from him these other manifestations are coming. And all of the avatars are coming from him. They're descending into the material world. Almost all. You can think all, it's all right. Either way. Brahman is, doesn't manifest a form. The, that concept of the absolute, there's no manifest form. So it's addressed, Brahman, as Aja, unborn. On what basis then can Brahman be conceptualized in terms of name and class? 
The reason is in Brahman, it, it can't be, because in the Brahman conceptions, there's no pastimes. Brahman doesn't do anything. Uh, avakari, no pastimes. Vikari means somebody acts in some way, engages in pastimes. Without conceptualization of name and category, there is no possibility of understanding anything about any object whatsoever. Conceptualized names and categories cannot convey the natural characteristics of an object. So we touched upon this already. That in the material world, we can assign names to things that have nothing to do with, with their actual uh, qualities and nature. And we can assign a name as best we can, even, even as a great astrologer. But still, it may, not, it may be applicable at the point of, of birth, but then something can happen and the sage can be in meditation and, and see fish copulating and all of a sudden there's a there's a fall down and you know that great sage who has applied that tremendous name at birth in anticipation of all that he would accomplish in life got thrown off the track so that's what we Krishna's not going to be thrown off the track so his name's fully applicable all the time Then Jiva Goswami goes on and talks about the Gopal Tapani Upanishad. Similarly, in the section of Gopal Tapani Upanishad, wherein the 18-syllable mantra consisting of the Lord's names is described, Sri Brahma says, now this 18-syllable mantra is, is our mantra. The 18 syllables include the opening seed, and then you can count now the same mantra, which is our our uh, Gopal mantra, uh, also is truncated in different ways. And sometimes people are 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 chanting their mantra to the same personality, but in with just some section of it. Just the last section. Gopi Jana Balava. Oh, the truncated means right. abbreviated. Or... Some section of it. Mm. So they may chant Gopi Jana Balava Swaha only, or mm. Gopi Jana Balava. So we hear, when you hear six syllable, nine syllable, like that, you can understand that it's. But when you hear 18 syllable as as spoken about in the Gopal Tapani Upanishad, that's what we've received in the Brahma Madhva Gaudiya Sampradaya. Eighteen-syllable mantra consisting of the Lord's names is described, Sri Brahma says, while manifesting the future universe in those letters. So in other words, this is the mantra that Brahma was initiated into by Krishna himself. And in that mantra was the entire potency 
to perform his service of manifestation of a material universe. While manifesting the future universe in those letters. Thus the Lord's names are self-existent because they are distinct from ordinary sound, being the cause of the universe consisting of material elements, such as sound. So the mantra is there before sound. Sound comes later. Which comes into existence only later on. And because the Lord's name is non-different from his form, it is distinct from material sound. According to Vedic authorities, even the letters are fully transcendental. Based on what principle? Well, you can't make something something that's fully transcendental or spiritual can't have parts that are not it can't be you know put together from things that aren't spiritual and vice versa so um, for that reason in in Sanskrit the individual letters are called aksara imperishable Moreover, if words are considered eternal, their constituent parts must also be eternal. Again, logic dictates that it is not possible to have an eternal object with temporal components because what is not in the cause cannot be in the effect. We'll conclude this evening with a verse from the Rig Veda. O Sri Vishnu, by chanting your name, which is conscious and glorious, we who have little knowledge about the name attain true insight. This name is eternal. Jiva Goswami explains this verse. The meaning of this mantra is as follows. O Sri Vishnu, your name is conscious. Shit. Or it is consciousness and is therefore self-effulgent in nature. So even though we have but partial knowledge of the eternal nature of your name, meaning that we are not endowed with complete understanding of the glory of proper chanting, Yet simply by repeating the syllables, we can attain true insight, or in other words, authentic knowledge of you. Therefore, the entity expressed by Om, which is used, is self-existent, Sat. Thank you so much.